Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles with me this morning and open to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah will be in chapter 7 and 8. I'm going to read from Isaiah 8, starting in verse 11 in just a moment. So if you want to turn there. While you're turning there, a couple of important points of mission for the life of our church. As Ethan mentioned earlier, community groups have launched. Man, we want you to be in community group. The church is the expression of the hands and the feet of the church in community group where we are actively ministering to one another, encouraging one another and strengthening one another in the fullness that God has intended for us to. Let us help you connect today. Secondly, on Friday night, we are hosting um, a, a a seminar, you might say, a Q&A. Uh, we have an Israeli tour guide who is an American who lives in Israel, has for about 30 years now, and uh, he is going to join us. He is a professional tour guide there, and he is going to speak to the situation in Israel. He'll give a little history on the war, but also uh, provide some perspective from a, a believer's perspective about all that is transpiring there. So that's Friday night from 6.30 to 8.00 in the multi-purpose room. Everyone is welcome, but we do need you to register on Realm so we'll know how many prepare for. Finally, today, uh, students and parents, we're registering for Disciple Now. We're right at the threshold. We need to know. Got a lot of decisions to make this week. Be sure and get registered for February um, 16, 17, and 18 for Disciple Now. That'll be an incredible weekend for our students. All right. Well, let's go to the word this morning. I'm going to look at firm in faith from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 8. I'm going to begin by reading chapter 8 in verse 11. I'll read through the first part of verse 20 before we continue the message. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken away. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. 
I want to preach this passage today because it provides some historical context for the series I'm going to begin next week in Daniel. But I have to confess at the beginning of this message, there are sermons that I would rather not preach. This has got to be in my top five. Maybe you'll know by the time I'm finished. Things are not going well in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. But about they are about to get much worse. Ahaz has become king. And it tells us that Ahaz is uh, the son of Jotham, verse one of chapter seven, the son of Uzziah. Now, if you remember from the previous chapter, Uzziah is the king who had died, who marked the time when Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And if you study that culturally and historically, you know that um, the southern kingdom of Judah under Uzziah's reign was a prosperous time. It was a peaceful time. And it was a time that people enjoyed their life with the Lord. But immediately after him, when Jotham took over, he ruled very shortly. And then when Ahaz took over from his father, it says in 2 Kings chapter 16 that he was 20 years old and that he reigned 16 years. Listen, though, to the way 2 Kings 16 verses 2 and 3 summarizes the rule of King Ahaz. It records, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Friends, of all the phrases that could be used as compliments for kings in this day and time, this is not one of them. To walk in the way of the kings of Israel was a reference to the northern kingdom that had already been overthrown and was under occupational rule and they were there because of God's judgment. They were under occupational rule because God had sent an enemy to overthrow them in judgment of them because they had denied God. And that is what we are being warned of here the ways of the kings of Israel is not a compliment. When you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it doesn't take very long to realize God's not happy with you. They had rejected God for their own ways. And when we come to chapter seven of Isaiah, Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, were allying with one another to go to war against Ahaz. And they had not yet quite built their armies sufficiently in order to overthrow him. Ahaz is paralyzed in fear. He's trying to figure out what am I going to do to counter this alliance. I need an alliance of my own. And that was true. But immediately after that is where Ahaz went wrong. Instead of allying himself with the word of God as revealed to him, he chose another king. Irony of ironies, we shall see who it is he chose. Chapter 7, right in the middle of all of this posturing that Ahaz is doing, trying to figure out what he's going to do as a king, God sends the prophet Isaiah to tell him, do not fear these kings. Look at verse 4. At what he says, what Isaiah says to Ahaz, I love this. And he said to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. 
I love it when God talks smack because he always backs it up. Ahaz, Ahaz, look here, you're distracted. That's going to be very detrimental for you if you don't pay attention. Ahaz would not listen. You see, fear skewed Ahaz's perspective. It blocked his receptivity sensors to the Lord so that he would not listen to wise counsel. He just listened to the counsel that was most immediately around him. God tells Ahaz a few verses later in verse 10 to ask for a sign. You ever ask God for that? How often have you said, oh God, would you just give me a sign? Right? God commands Ahaz, ask me for a sign. It's an invitation that God is extending to strengthen his faith, to trust in him. But what does Ahaz do? Ahaz denies God's invitation and he tries to hide his fear by gaslighting God with hyper-spiritual religious jargon. Oh, I would not put my God to the test. You see, in other words, Ahaz twists the words of God in order to use them against God so he would not have to be bothered with trusting God to obey him. Friends, God is not fooled because God cannot be fooled. You don't gaslight the one who is the light of truth. God sees clearly. He discerns with accurate, acute precision. So God provides a sign and God's sign becomes a warning for Ahaz to not go wrong, the wrong way he's choosing to go. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God's sign of judgment is the promise, the prophecy of a savior. But friends, for those who will not believe, the sign shall not be one of hope, but of utter destruction. Maybe you're familiar with this verse. If you've been in church around Christmas time for any period of time in your life, you've probably heard this verse quoted as the prophecy of our coming Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be absolutely correct. But so often we miss the context into which that prophecy was spoken. It was not a peaceful time like we think of Christmas where everybody's in the giving spirit and no one's really upset about the craziness of the parking lot at the local store or otherwise. And God gives the greatest news of all times. Do you ever wonder how the greatest of all great good news could ever become bad news? Who talks about good news in this way? I'll tell you who. The Bible tells us that those who live in opposition to God, who, who will not worship, who will not obey him, but hear me, understand this. These just aren't those people. Isaiah is speaking to God's people. These are the people who claim the name of God as their own. And yet their hearts are hard towards him. So Isaiah warns Ahaz that if you will not heed God's warning, 
He says this, every hair of dignity will be removed in humiliation, verse 20. And it will not be, uh, it will not come to fruition through the threat that he fears, but rather from where it is that fear causes him to run to out of his faithlessness. In other words, God says, you think your fear is helping you to see things clearly, but it's actually clouded your perspective and what you are running to is the very place where judgment will be found by you. If you do not trust in me, the sign that I'm giving you that a savior will come to be born of a virgin, if you will not believe that I am sending the savior, your own fear will cause you to run straight into my judgment. Isaiah warns Ahaz that if he doesn't heed God's warning, every hair of dignity removed in humiliation. You see, friends, God is very clear. If you do not trust me, you will not stand. Friends, hear me. Today, God is saying the same thing to us as he says to Ahaz through Isaiah. Whatever you are facing, whatever you fear, God says to you, I alone am your Savior. There is no other way. There is no other way. But for Ahaz, never mind what God said, his fear drove him to strike an alliance with who? Assyria. Good choice. We've seen what they did up north. It's good. Okay, good choice. Ahaz couldn't hear God because he had only listened to the bad voices of his fear and his fear drove him right into the judgment of God. You see, friends, Ahaz's undoing was allowing fear to rule him so that it stripped him of his faith in God. Ahaz put his fear in the wrong place, put his faith in the wrong hope, and that caused confusion in the counsel in which he listened to, which created darkness in his thinking about the whole situation, so that he reached the wrong conclusion, trusted the bad alliance with Assyria as better than God's sign and promise that he had sent to him. Friends, listen to me. Ahaz's sin was not in taking action to protect Judah. That's what kings do, right? Kings rule for the prosperity, peace, and for the, the protection of their people. So what was Ahaz's sin? Ahaz made a deal with the devil. He hardened his heart and he would not listen to God. And he is the one who invited the enemy to come in for utter destruction. Isaiah again warns Ahaz as we get to chapter 8 verse 1 of the real threat that he should fear. And he tells him that God's judgment is coming through this ungodly alliance with Assyria. That it will come faster and be more utterly devastating than he could imagine. Verse 1 and then we see it again in verse 3. That the name of this judgment will be Maher Shalah Hashbaz. A, a Hebrew phrase that literally means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. In other words, he's warning him that it will come faster. It will bring greater ultimate devastation than you have possibly dared to conceive. 
And now God's warning is not just to the king, but because the king won't listen, God is warning all of his people now. Each and every one of you must listen. He's warning the whole kingdom of Judah. Like a swelling river, Assyria will rise and destruction will cover all like the floodwaters that comes in. We've seen the videos of the tsunami a number of years ago from Thailand where the waves washed in and they washed up higher than ever before and they came in with greater force and instead of going back out as waves do, they came in again even higher than the time before and wave after wave began to wash in over the people destroying everything in its force. Ironically, just this last week, another video broke from St. Martin of the same kind of flooding that was transpiring there. And one video I saw of that flooding was a, a video within a house, a security camera or something, where the video shows a family sitting around in their own living room. And all of a sudden, water comes in through the front door. And before they even have time to all stand up, the flood wave washes through and takes out the whole side wall of the house. And that's the last thing you see on the camera. God says that's nothing for what's about to wash over you who do not believe in me. Nothing. In all of this, God tells his people, he is the one who brings judgment. The people, they take counsel among themselves. What do we do? But Their counsel proves useless in the face of God's judgment. And he says, listen, he, he promises Emmanuel. You remember what that name means? It means God with us. And yet God among us will be the very sign of judgment for those who reject God's warning and God's promise. Why? Because they would not believe. They would not trust. Who is this judgment for? We want to know, don't we? I do. Glad you ask. Here's a question. What about the people who do trust God in the midst of judgment? How is it that you live in such a time when God's judgment washes in like a floodwaters, overwhelming, devastating everything in its past? We should ask this question, friends. We should, because we live in a day and time today of a new reality. A new reality that I would argue we've not fully awakened to and we are thinking about with a great amount of, if you'll allow me the term, brain fog. The world has changed. It's shifting at a faster rate and in ways that we've never conceived and to a greater extent than we've even imagined possible. And the hardest thing for most is this new reality. We, we've been saying it for years, but we live in a nation that has become post-Christian. Friends, it's just hard to conceive and imagine what you've never known. And that's a lot of our lack of understanding, surely. Surely. And in this year of election, I'm growing increasingly concerned for the Little C Church. I have zero concern for the Capital C Church, the Church Universal. 
all believers of all time. God tells us, I know those that are mine and I do not lose a one. Not worried about the big C church, but I'm desperate in my worry for the little C church. And not just whether or not they'll survive, but this, whether or not Christ followers will lose hope when the floodwaters overwhelm. We live in a day and time when politics are more polarized than ever before in a culture peaked to rage. I don't have time to rant over all of this today, so I'll try to cut it a little short. But I need to set a context for what I'm talking about when I talk about a post-Christian America. We've been talking about this for years, but this This very article gave me just a nugget to be able to use as an illustration. The Washington Post, Monday of this last week, uh, put an article on their website. And and the, the gist of the argument begins talking about the hardening divisions among people and political divides. And and it says it's becoming known in the academic world, that's who we ought to trust, as effective polarization. Effective polarization politically. Politically. And they claim that the polarization is due to becoming a feelings-based emotional response to those that one holds visceral dislike towards. Well, that's a really pleasant way of saying people you hate because they are not like you. That's what the article is saying. And it goes on to say this, we've tied politics too closely to our identity instead of just simply to divergent policy preferences among the parties. The article then states, citing political psychologists, oh, wonderful. That's what we need. That group mix sounds like a social cocktail of strychnine and fentanyl. Anybody want to drink? That's what it sounds like. Political psychologists. But listen, they they point to evolution as a major factor that's causing the divide. And, And they do so in a way where they say, their conclusion is, this is inevitable for us to divide this way because of evolution. Friends, this is an absolutely complete post Christian ideology that's a philosophy formed out of God-denying atheistic conclusions. They, they They don't argue whether evolution is even significant or real. They build their argument on the conclusion that it is. And in case you're wondering, it's not. That's why we still call it a theory can find all of my rants from 2019 in Genesis. But I'm telling you, the reason that we are embroiled in the sexual confusion that we are in today goes back to the theory of evolution and it becoming the bedrock of our ideology in the world today that denies God's hand as creator. And if he didn't create us in his image as male and female, we can create whatever kind of image we want to. But the floodwaters are coming. Be not confused about that. I'm not shocked about the argument 
that I ought to expect from a national media outlet that arguably leans left in most of their positions and their support. However, blaming evolution not only misses the point by presuming the truth of an unproven theory as foundational, but even more akin to our day and time, their conclusion completely dismisses individual personal responsibility to do something about it. No one is surprised that politics and news media are skewing their reports. Surely we're past that. I mean, surely investigations of the last few years have taught us that their bias is being exposed one article after the other, exposing legitimate evidence of what once was labeled conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory, you people are nuts. Oh, that actually is what happened. In everyone, no, likely not, but in enough. In enough for us not to believe their headlines because the article doesn't actually report anything akin to what their headline purports. Maybe though, as I read this passage, maybe conspiracy theories are not new to our day and age. <gasps> maybe. But lest you think I'm here today to blame our problems on politicians and world power or the media and communication sources, a.k.a. the enemy's puppets and megaphones, let me move to a more personal factor of this new reality. The North American church has changed and it's continuing in its decline. Researchers will tell you that the church of the north, everything north of the equator, is in an absolute free fall of decline. The only place on the globe that the church itself is growing as a whole is south of the equator in the southern church, South America, Africa, and those nations. And in those places, God is moving with such power and might that people are being saved by the tens of thousands and more. Great revivals that are transpiring. But here in North America, we sit We've gone from the Christian deconstruction phase that devolved into the de-churching of this generation. And friends, by de-churching, I, I don't simply mean to say just people leaving the church, but rather they're deconstructing the church in order to remake it in self-made concoctions. And those concoctions are predominantly sourced and formed by ideas that are being input at alarmingly crazy fast rates from social media influence. whom we have no idea who's on the backside of it. We just see their little profile bio and buy into it. Many churches are splintering over wrongly prioritized secondary issues. Many churches are rightly dividing over first order issues wrongly allowed and affirmed to begin with. And some who are sticking their head in the proverbial sand are continuing to propagate a pseudo-gospel of any number of varieties acting as if the status quo can be maintained. And at the heart of all of this, at the heart of it, pastors are morally falling out, they're being kicked out, they're bailing out, and they're burning out. 
Gallup.com posted an article showing that confidence in pastors, confidence in pastors is at an all-time low in the United States, above only three other groups of people. Are you ready? Don't try to laugh too loud or spit on the person in front of you when you do laugh. Journal, journalists, senators, and members of Congress. Those are the only people we've beat out. Used car salesmen are so high on the, they're not even on this study because they're nowhere near in the section that we're talking about. That's a joke. If you sell cars, I'm, I'm not opposed to it, just a joke. I, I mean, I'm shocked that we didn't, you know, host an award ceremony for the announcement. Such good news. Oh, the church has some big news. Let's have a news media press and, and, and share it with everyone. But friends, this is hardly shocking because 18 months prior to that article that came out this past Monday in May of 2022, the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University, Christian University and their research center wrote an article about a study they did, and the article begins this week, or this way. A new nationwide survey of America's Christian pastors show that just slightly more than one third, 37%, possess a biblical worldview. And the majority, 62%, hold a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. Now, if you don't know what syncretism is, syncretism is a big word that simply means gospel plus theology. They're just bringing everything in. It adds everything to the gospel to make it a whole different gospel. Now, I don't know exactly how it is they define the term pastor, so that could surely play into this. But as you continue to read the article, you should see the statistics on some of the other staff members. The pastors are some of the most faithful ones because it even quoted towards the end of that paragraph that many of the children's ministers, not many of them, but of all the children's ministers that they surveyed, only 12% held to a biblical worldview. There's no wonder why the North American church is deconstructing. We've forsaken God. We've stuck our fingers in our ears and went blah, 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 blah. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I got too much life to live and to figure out. Now, I don't know if I've piqued your interest yet or not, but I pray I have. Because what I want us to see is that God is speaking today with Isaiah's message. A message that you and I need to hear and we need to heed today. What I want you to see is that Jesus proves sufficient to hold life firm when he is the center of all your hope and faith. Jesus proves sufficient to hold life firm when he is the Center, not an accessory, the center of all your hope and faith. Friends, Isaiah 7, 14 is true, it is right, and it is as good today as it was in the day that message was first delivered. There will be one come who was born of a virgin, and his name shall be Emmanuel. The question is, when he arrives... Will you be found as one with faith trusting in him so that it is the blessed promise of eternal hope 
Or will you be found one distracted, looking for another alliance to protect and provide for your life? How is it that one stands firm and waits for the Lord when the enemy looms and destruction threatens? Any who will listen, there is a way to follow God when the floodwaters of judgment pour in. God's way is the only way and always the way to life. I provide for you a way to stand firm in faith and then I'll conclude with an invitation to trust. A way to stand firm begins verse 11 and 12 of chapter 8 that we recognize our fears and confess them to Jesus. We recognize our fears and we confess them to Jesus. The Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me. In other words, Isaiah said, I couldn't do any different than this. My whole life was constricted by the grip of God on me. If I didn't get this message out of me, I would not have survived, he said. And he warned me not to walk in the way of this people. What people? People who are ruled and driven and living by fear. Everything is being considered a conspiracy theory so that they can dismiss it and find their own way, but it's their own way that is actually the fulfillment of their actual fear. That's what he's saying. The people followed Ahaz to become as equally fear-filled as he was in their ignoring of God. How often we are ruled by our fears. Why? Because we simply ignore them. We label them something so we don't have to address them because we're too busy looking for some way to alleviate them. Friends, I tell you, fear is not the symptom of an illness nor a disease to treat. Fear is the state of a heart that is set on an idol that is unable and incapable of satisfying the heart's demand for it. Idols always stoke fear. This is the first activity of the Garden of Eden. Eden was this, a fear of missing out. FOMO, maybe you've heard of it before. That is the first tactic that the serpent used in the garden. God knows if you eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge and evil, you'll become like God. You don't want to miss out, do you? <gasps> we might miss out. The second is the fear of man that gets fueled by sin-driven comparison where it reveals that our faith is absent. We're not trying to live to God's standard anymore. We're trying to live to the standard maybe with God's name or maybe not with God's name that we see others doing okay and getting by on. And if I can just get to there, I'll be happy. Forget God's way. You see, friends, fear produces walking in a faithless manner into a God-denying, God-ignoring reality. Fear is universal to all people because it is the first fruit of sin. And Genesis 3 teaches us where it is that fear originates from three primary sources. The first one is simply this, listening to the wrong influencers, listening to the wrong sources. And I would add to that, that fear producer includes listening to too many influencers or too many sources. The second origin that Genesis 3 teaches us about fear is, is the skewed perception of our reality. When out of fear we look at life, we don't see things as they are, but we begin to see things as we've created them or we've come to believe about them. And it skews our perception of reality from, we think we see it crystal clear, but it skews it from what God's word has said as is. 
God's word says that that savior who would be born of a virgin would be the greatest hope of promise and he would save to the uttermost because he will overcome. But if you don't believe, he'll be just the opposite. The third source that Genesis 3 teaches us uh, that originates fear is a confused identity. You see, friends, when we are unsure and unstable about who we are, we do not know what to believe about anything else. Don't you think the powers of this world, the powers of darkness, want us confused about our sexual identity that is foundational to God's created purpose, God's created intention and his created way for us? Because when we get confused about male and female, the field is wide open to be deceived about everything else. Everything else gets made a higher priority because this doesn't have any validity. What God's word says, well, you can believe it if you want, but that's conspiracy theory. We know the truth now. Friends, I'm convinced a majority of fears and anxiety today are simply from being overwhelmed by too much information. And it really doesn't matter what I believe about this. Read the research. Screen time equals anxiety. I don't have to convince you of this. You know this. We all know this. We even think it in our mind as we scroll through. Doesn't mean that scrolling is wrong. Man, you're just mad at us for spending too much time on our phones. You want us to bring our Bible instead of using our Bible on our phone, Pastor. That's what this is all about. No, friends. Well, yes, but, but no. We just can't process it all. And, and our confusion forms a skewed reality and a confused identity. It's like listening to a conversation between my wife and my daughter. I can't keep up. They just talk about things at a rate that I can't compute. We constantly consume if we ate the way we consume information today, we would all be north of 900 pounds. And that creates an exhaustion. And you know what exhaustion is? It's the most fertile ground to produce an abundant crop for fear farming. Man, when you're exhausted, Satan has you. When you didn't honor the Lord through Sabbath, when you didn't believe when God said rest and you just kept going because the lights were still on and the electricity was flowing, you just kept going. You're exhausted. You don't even know it. Or you know it and you don't care. Satan's got you right where he wants you. Because when your body is weak and worn, your mind is totally exposed and susceptible. Let me ask you this. Do you know what arouses fear in you? Do you know when your fears arise and how it is they rule you? Do you know what you're doing with your fear? Friends, I hope you know I'm not making light of fear, of anxiety. It's real. And I know there are physiological manifestations of anxiety in our world today that aren't just because we don't believe in God. They are the fruit of sin multiplied over time and time again. But I'm asking you not to use that as a way to diverge from the message today and to ask yourself, what am I doing with my fear? Am I recognizing what it's doing to me? Fear only has one right response. 
to confess it to Jesus until it is replaced by faith in the truth of his word. The only way fear will ever be addressed is not, some by, fab, is not by some fabulous concoction that we conjure up, but simply confessing it and asking God to give us faith for that area, that decision, that circumstance, whatever it is in our life we're focused on and fear is being produced through it. It's because we need to turn away from that false hope, that false idol that we're looking towards, and we need to keep putting our faith in God until the Savior comes. He is with us. He is with us. The second way to walk is to honor the Lord in all your life in ways so fear is consumed in him. Honor the Lord in all your life in ways so fear is consumed in him. Uncertainty and chaos has consumed every person, every generation, and every culture since Genesis 3. That's why the most recited command in the Bible is what? Do not. Help me. Fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. When anything or anyone other than Jesus holds fear, it's consumed in what's unworthy. You see, fear is a form of honor. That's why fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because he absolves your fear. Cast it out. And overflows with love. Peter reminds us that until we set our heart to honor the Lord first, we're not ready to trust him. Proverbs 3, verse 6 says that when we acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways, he directs us. That word for acknowledge literally means to recognize who he is. Doesn't tell us to recognize who we are. We've already gotten confused about that. Recognize who he is. Isaiah says right here that he, in verse 13, is the Lord of hosts. Him shall you honor. Let me tell you who the Lord of hosts is, friends. When you see that title for God in the Old Testament, It is a title given to our warrior God who goes before us, who fights for us to bring victory to us. And when you honor the Lord as holy, you overcome by taking refuge in the one who is the overcomer. First John teaches us that. That's why God gave us the armor of God, not the tutu of God. You see, what fear does is it fixates on what it says is. It creates a reality around you and in you and wants you to live by that. But faith lifts your eyes to the great I am that I am to bring salvation from these things. Fear will create a reality in you that won't ever be true. Faith won't ever be denied in the reality it brings to you. Instead of fixating on what is coming And fear, fix your eyes on the one you're following by faith who has already overcome. Thirdly, a way to live is to immerse your life in Christian community where God's word is sealed into your life. Verses 16 through 20 here. Community didn't start today. Community didn't start with this church, with this generation. Community where the fellowship of God's people is shared has always been a part of God's plan. Isaiah tells the people, grab hold of what God has told them and teach it among the disciples. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. The last two weeks, I've been talking about real Christ followers, 
Why? Because we've got a lot of fakes walking around in the world today and the evil one is wanting to make a fake of all of us. And what Isaiah is saying to the people here, bind up the testimony, take in the word of God, the testimony of the one who is revealing to you the words of life and seal the teaching among my disciples. There ought to be something we as the church treasure like we treasure nothing else. And it's the word of God that is living among us by his spirit, friends. That's what community's all about. Real Christ followers get serious regarding God's word because we understand that it produces faith and hope in us, that it provides wisdom and strength and light for us, and it brings peace to us. You see, when Christian community is centered on God's word, it produces an endless source of three blessings. First of all, a refuge for life. Look at verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Instead of going, you know, I don't hear from God today, so I guess there's nothing he wants me to do. I'm free to live on my own. No, God has already given us the fullness of his revelation. We are never left without. Verse 17 says, I We'll wait for the Lord. I will take refuge in the one who is the rock of my salvation. And as long as it may be, as long as he may tarry, I will hope in him. Set your hope before your feet hit the floor every morning, friends. The second source of blessing when our community is centered on God's word is it builds a witness of your life. Verse 18, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. My life will be a faithful witness that's formed and enlarged together as we stand with one another in following by faith. That's why Joshua, this aged man who had seen God move in such powerful ways, but he was watching the people continue to rebel. He said of them, choose ye this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. That's what it means to set your heart, build your life as a witness. Verses 19 and 20. We see that the third source of blessing from a community centered on God's word is it provides counsel for your whole life, your whole life. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, what came across your news feed today that I need to see? Should not a people ask of their God? Shouldn't we break the bread of life before we break the seal of our news feed? Yes, we should. Yes, we should to the teaching and to the testimony. We go to God. We go to his word. We're desperate for it in these days, friends. We don't see a way forward from the travail of the judgment that is coming, but he is our way forward. He is in all these ways. Christian community provides immeasurable blessings. The more you want to honor the Lord and walk faithfully unto him in your life, the more deeply you will immerse your life and the life of your children into Christian community, not because it's just good or it's morally right, because we're a desperate people to see a move of God, to trust him against all of the conspiracy theories that the evil one is working to deceive us by and to hold to the light and the truth of God. Now an invitation, and I need to land this quick. Here's the invitation. God's warning 
It's his invitation to put your trust in him. When God first sent Isaiah to Ahaz, chapter seven, he invited him to trust instead of fear. God's counsel to Ahaz is good counsel for us today too. Whether you're ruled by fear and anxiety or you're trusting in peace, that will always be determined by who it is you look to and where you place your hope for life. God's promise of salvation is as sufficient for us today as it was for them in that day. The Savior who Isaiah said would come is the one who has now come. Jesus Christ came from heaven, willingly laid down his life to die on the cross. They put him in an empty tomb, but they could not hold him there. And he rose from the dead three days later, and he sits today enthroned at the right hand of the Father, where he rules and he reigns. And the question is, friends, when the gospel proclaims that Jesus is worthy of all your hope because he's conquered the enemy, and only in him will you overcome, will he be your refuge? Will he be the rock that provides all the protection you have? Or will you just keep tripping over him and stumbling because you refuse to believe? Friends, Jesus is not just the best way. He's the only way to salvation. Trust in him and your fear will flee. Let's pray.